the Oxford English Dictionary got it wrong, but it's still worth exploring the myth. Thailand, then called Siam, had a tradition that owning a white elephant was a symbol that you were a just and important leader. Such an important symbol that, according to an essay written in the 1700s, king of a nearby country extended his hand in friendship to the king of Siam, asking if he could buy one of the king's two white elephants. When refused, he decided to restore his honor by attacking Siam. And in the war that followed, 500,000 people died, all to get a white elephant. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about gifts and some costs. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. Make things better. That's the goal. Make things better by making better things. That's marketing. Marketing works. It works because we show up in the world with something that makes a change for the better. And we've discovered the single best way to learn marketing. It's called the Marketing Seminar, an interactive, ongoing, discussion-based, project-based workshop that actually works. It's back. It's back again at akimbo.com go. Find all the details. If you are serious about changing the culture, if you are serious about showing up in a way that grows your project, your business, your cause, I hope you'll check out the Marketing Seminar. It's at akimbo.com slash go. It's back. It works because you do. We'll see you there. Alert listeners knew that I was warming up to talk about gifts, but here's what inspired the whole thing. Someone on Twitter was annoyed. I know that's not news. Someone on Twitter is always annoyed. But they were annoyed because they had a job interview. And in the written part of the interview, the question was, if someone gave you an elephant and you were not allowed to put it to work or sell it, what would you do with it? And this person was incensed because it was unfair. It had nothing to do with their job. It was that kind of thing that companies think they're being clever around but is really quite stupid. Well, I disagree about that. I think it's a great question, and here's why. A white elephant has come to mean something that you are given that you don't want, don't need, can't take care of, and is a hassle. That the false story about white elephants is that the king of Siam, to annoy somebody, would give them a white elephant. By giving someone a white elephant, you are putting a burden on them because they can't put it to work, it's expensive to feed, and they're difficult or impossible to sell. So is it a gift? It feels to me like one of the answers, and there are so many good answers to this question that would show that you are a creative, resilient, thoughtful, connected person, able to think on your feet, but leaving that aside, one of the answers that I like is I would not accept it because if it's a gift, that means I don't have to accept it. So understanding what a gift even is, is a really useful way for us to think about how we're going to navigate our engagements with other people. If somebody says, I am giving you the gift of being allowed to be on my podcast, well, if it's really a gift, you can say no. 
If your boss says, I am giving you this gift and you get to take on this extra work and it's really a gift and both sides think it's a gift, you can say no. But where it gets really interesting is when you give a gift to yourself. And it's been more than a year and a half since I ranted about sunk costs, so I need to do it again. Because you are giving yourself gifts all the time. If you spent years earning an advanced degree, that previous version of you invested in an asset and it is offering it to you, the future version of you, and it's a gift and you don't have to accept it if you don't have a way to take care of it. You don't have to accept it if it doesn't match where you are hoping to go. The most important thing that we learn about decision-making in business school is sunk costs must be ignored. For something to be a sunk cost, it means you expended the effort yesterday, but today you are going to make a new decision based on new information. And that thing you did yesterday, those sunk costs, they're a gift. They're a gift from your former self to your present self. We need to examine this from a bunch of angles because you probably agreed with everything I just said. And yet, it is hard to put our arms around. Let's say you saved and saved and saved for a film camera. You learned how to use a film camera. You are good at taking pictures with film. But now, going forward, digital pictures are easier to edit. You can take far more of them. The commercial demand for digital pictures is much higher. That in order to be a productive professional photographer, with very few exceptions, you're going to have to get good at digital photography. And so if you want to be productive and successful in the market as it exists, and you look over at that shelf, and that shelf is filled with film cameras and the lenses that go with them, and you think about how hard you worked to build the skills that you have on working with film, not to mention being in the dark room, it's easy to feel a little bit of sadness about the fact that you can't accept the gift. Because accepting the gift, it's not about denying how hard you worked or how useful it was. It's not about denying the fact that in some places a white elephant is a sacred thing. It is simply about acknowledging that what makes it a gift is that you don't have to accept it. And one of the challenges that we have when we talk to our future selves is we want our future selves to feel really badly about not accepting the gifts we've been busy giving it. But we live in revolutionary times, and revolutions destroy the perfect before they enable the impossible. It's impossible that you're listening to this podcast, that I am in your earbuds wherever you are, that it has traveled thousands of miles, that no money changed hands, that it shows up on the regular basis, that I don't know you and you don't know me, and here we are. All of these things are impossible. I don't have an FCC license. I don't have any training, and here we are. It destroyed the perfect idea of talk radio, which ruled for 90 years. If you were the king of talk radio, podcasts are not your friend in general, because the only way for them to have been your friend would be to have walked away from that thing you worked so hard to build. Revolutions destroy the perfect before they enable the impossible. And as long as that is going on, what goes with it is 
the acknowledgement that gifts do not have to be accepted, that that's what makes it a gift. So a short rant, but I wanted to share that with you because I think it's a useful way to decide who you want to be tomorrow. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. We'll be back in a second with some questions from previous episodes. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. When is it time to level up? When is it time to learn a new way to see the world, to connect with others, to lead, to engage in possibility? Akimbo is a B Corp, an independently owned and operated institution designed around learning, not education, not certificates, not grades, but learning together. It works if you do the work. I hope you'll check out what the people at Akimbo are up to. Visit akimbo.com go to find out about their new upcoming workshops and how it all works. Thanks. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Greetings, Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. As you know, I love to hear from you. If you've got a question about this or any previous episode, I hope you'll visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button. While you're there, please go ahead and check out the show notes, lovingly hand-created each week. Three questions this week about information, misinformation, and disinformation. Here we go. Hey, Seth. This is Joey Chang from Oakland, California. And my question is, how do we as a society deal with the problem of misinformation? I see it happening all around with regard to vaccine efficacy and safety, with political messaging And what are your thoughts on disinformation and artificial intelligence's ability to aid us in deceiving each other? How do we build trust in this brave new world that we're living in? Thanks for all the ideas that you share so consistently. Thank you for this and for getting us started and for the distinction between misinformation and disinformation. We all lived over the last 50 or 100 years in a moment of time that has not happened before. It may not happen again. And it was a moment in time when there were very loud, centralized media outlets. And those media outlets, particularly in non-fascist countries, were encouraged to tell us some version of the truth. Maybe it was influenced by advertisers, industrialists, or the status quo. But They weren't simply making stuff up, that it wasn't a useful strategy for ABC or NBC to say things that were demonstrably untrue. And the main reason for that is that if there's only three TV networks, you get a third of the audience for free. And the goal is not to lose them and maybe to gain some. But as we fractured the media landscape, we got closer to what newspapers were like in the 1910s and 20s, which is you didn't get any table stakes. That the way you found an audience 
was by going to some extreme, by being outrageous, by talking about housewives or making up conspiracy theories, that if you could get your smallest viable audience and they were loyal and you could indoctrinate them to a point of view, you would make more money. And so we've all been media trained, as we will talk about in a minute, we've all been media trained into giving the media the benefit of the doubt. But the new media landscape thrives on propaganda and disinformation. And I think the difference between misinformation and disinformation is misinformation might be a mistake. Disinformation is intentional. It is designed to divide us, to manipulate us, to make someone who isn't you come out ahead. And I believe the folks who are intentionally working to hurt us, to punish us, to divide us, to traumatize us with untruths about things like vaccines know full well that they are wrong, but they also know that in the short run, they are coming out ahead. They are profiting. So your question is, how do we, going forward, get back to that golden age? And it's tricky. It's tricky because there are institutions that have earned our trust and are working to keep our trust. But human beings being short-sighted and lazy and easily distracted, oh, look, a puppy, sometimes get bored with the truth and instead chase a fable instead. Number two, the problem is that identity isn't always clear. And with AI, it's going to be even easier to fake a video or a news report, and we won't know exactly who said it. So I think that what's going to happen over time is we're going to come up with more secure channels for information so we can actually verify who is speaking to us. And I think that over time, when the side effects and repercussions of these myths, truths come home to roost, people, at least for a little while, will flee from them. Joe McCarthy persuaded a lot of people in the United States in the 1950s, and then he didn't. And some people learned their lesson and got back on track. But yeah, it's a bumpy road. And part of the reason it's bumpy is because in small communities, we give people the benefit of the doubt. In true mass media, we gave media the benefit of the doubt. And now we have a hybrid that is neither. It's neither fully mass, but it's large. And it's not something that we can look at and say, yes, these people have an incentive to be telling us the truth. So I hate to say buyer beware. I'd rather say carpe diem, seize the day. But the fact is we need to think really hard about the long-term impacts of the propaganda and indoctrination that's being used against us. We need to consider how the person who's talking to us benefits. We need to think hard about the fact that if you are not paying for something, you're not the customer, you're the product. And is someone turning you into a product because it helps them, not you? Hey, Seth. This is Michal phoning from an organic farm in Ontario, Canada, just northwest of New York. First, thank you for all that you do. And a special shout out to the Akimbo community and all of the people that enable it. I've had the great privilege and pleasure of being in several of the workshops and I'm in writing in community three right now. And it's just an absolute blast. 
And so your recent podcast on the story of money and the tethering system was quite compelling. And shortly after, as life works out, I came across the work of Dr. Zachary Stein, who writes on education. And he'd written a few articles and was interviewed about the difference between education and propaganda. And it got me thinking about story and the story of money. If the monetary system now comes down to story, what story we believe, then it made me wonder about Dr. Stein's reference to propaganda and that what propaganda is about is an opaque form of information sharing versus education meant to truly impart knowledge and ideally enable the receiver to become smarter for it, to extend the work. Where do you go to get educated about the story of money? How can we, if we choose to dive in, find the transparent open sources of knowledge? How do you judge if it's open or meant to obfuscate? That's what I'm left with. All the best. And boom, right after I got that question, I got this one. Another great point about the story of money. And for sure, people who we think we can trust, giant buildings, banks, brokers, plenty of folks who are either asking us to spend our money or save our money, might not be amplifying a story of money that gives us utility for the long run. So a story of money has two parts. The bigger part, the part I'd rather focus on is, what do we teach our kids about value? What do we teach our kids about how spending for something gets them what they want or doesn't. As it says in that great book, Shantaram, happiness was invented by marketers who were trying to sell us something. For millennia, happiness or satisfaction was not associated with somehow taking money to buy something we had never bought before. Shopping is a very recent invention. And I've been to parts of the world where there is no shopping. And the whole idea that you would go to a store with money to buy something you've never had before just to give you pleasure, that's not basic human nature. That's something that's been taught to us. So teaching ourselves and our kids and our family and the people around us a useful story of money, the whole idea that you don't have to be in debt to be fully alive, I think that's critical. And then within that is the story of money of money, meaning do we really understand how Bitcoin works? Do we really understand what it means to put our money in a mutual fund? Do we really understand what a piece of stock is even worth? I know from personal experience when I have awarded people stock options, even some of the smartest people I know don't really understand what's being offered. That as money as an instrument turns into more and more derivatives and more people start playing the Robin Hood game of buying GameStop or some other version of it, as more people are saying my savings are in cryptocurrency, as more governments are becoming dependent on stories about money, I think it's imperative that we figure out as individuals what we individually are going to do about it. And there is no truth of money because money itself has to be a story. No one accepts a $20 bill because that piece of paper is worth anything. They accept it because they think they can trade that piece of paper for something else tomorrow. Thanks for this one. 
Hey, Seth. Jeremy from Winnipeg, Canada here. I've been listening through your back catalog of episodes, and I recently listened to the episode on apertures, uh, specifically the section where you kind of reference them a few times throughout the episode, but the Go-Go's. And it was actually the clip from one of their songs that you played at the end of the episode that got me thinking about a question I've had in the past. And essentially, it boils down to it seems from our modern perspective, when you look back on media, whether it's music or movies or TV from, say, 30 or 40 years ago, a lot of it feels really ham-fisted almost. It feels like there's no subtlety. Uh, and I think this is especially true of uh, a lot of movies and TV. Whereas nowadays, it feels like a lot of popular TV is filled with nuance and subtlety, and it's not quite so obvious. And the same thing for music, like the the lyrics in that song that you played uh, by the Go-Go's feel like so reminiscent of a certain era of music where there's no real depth or nuance to the, the lyrics. Whereas it seems like now on average, like media is just smarter and and more subtle and more nuanced. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Are audiences, like I imagine there have been creators who have been writing nuanced work and creating nuanced work for centuries or millennia. And so is it that now there is an appetite from audiences for more subtle work? Have audiences evolved and, and shifted as our culture has evolved and shifted to actually um, not only desire this or, or I guess not only understand this type of work and get it, but now that there's a natural appetite for it. Um, yeah, this is something that I, I've thought about many times when I have been rewatching, you know, old favorites, uh, whether that's uh, movies or TV or, or listening to old music and comparing it to um, more, more current types of, of media. So I would love to hear your thoughts. Thanks for everything you do. And a third great question to bring us home. Cultural literacy, story literacy, propaganda literacy, disinformation literacy, and yes, media literacy. I, too, have found that when I watch movies that I loved from 30 or 40 years ago, I can't believe how slow they are. Not just slow, but sometimes too much on the nose. That one of the things that's happened as we have increased our screen time from a couple hours a day to seven or eight or nine or 12 hours a day is we have dramatically amped up how much we can absorb from various forms of media. Also, the gatekeepers have become bored. And so the gatekeepers are asking the people who produce stuff to amp up the impressions per moment. And finally, we've got the issue of the long tail, which is the Carol Burnett show needed to entertain 50 million Americans every Saturday night or it was going to fail. And 50 million people getting the same joke, well, you pretty much got to give them a broader joke. Whereas if you're a stand-up doing something on Netflix, maybe 100,000 people at a time are watching what you're doing. And over the course of your run, you'll reach a few million. So you need to be specific back to this idea of the smallest viable audience. But I will not necessarily be persuaded by your point about nuance. There are plenty 
of novels from the 1960s that are way more nuanced than something you might buy at an airport today. There are songs that were written 100 years ago or 50 years ago or 20 years ago that are filled with thoughtful, clever allegories and innuendo and all sorts of other literary elements. In years we've been on our own And moss grows fat on a rolling stone But that's not how it used to be When the jester sang for the king and queen In a coat he borrowed from James Dean And a voice that came from you and me The king was looking down The jester stole his thorny crown The courtroom was adjourned Now verdict was returned And while Lenin read a book on Marx The quartet practiced in the park And we sang But I think the big difference is this. If you wanted to make music in the 60s or 70s, You really couldn't get a label deal unless you were Carol Burnett-sized in who you were going to appeal to. And so there the filter was, make it dumb. And now, the stuff you like, it's entirely possible, is really nuanced and thoughtful and adult. You're the one that I've been waiting for. Gotta quit this crying. But you don't have to listen very hard or very widely to realize there's just as much dumb music being made as there ever was. In fact, maybe even more. Because there's no shortage of people who simply aren't willing to do the mental work to think through what's being said to them. They just want to zone out. And that zoning out, that desire to zone out, while it might be a human inclination, is one that is amplified often by marketers or politicians who are hoping to lull us into a sense of acceptance so they can get what they want in the short run. All a way of ranting, all around three questions, which is, I wish it wasn't up to us. I wish we as a community could come together and figure out how to put a hand on the tiller so that we are heading as a community in a way that leads us toward resilience and dignity. But in these rough times, I think it's essential that A, each of us figure out what we're absorbing and why, and B, even more important, figure out how to teach the others. You're the one that I've been waiting for. Gotta quit this crying. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. I just don't think it's possible or probable in, in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know? And none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, There is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like we have data. What All MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas, you got access to information. That's awesome. but. When are you going to show up? When are you going to face that blank page? When are you going to face the possibilities within you? When are you going to face those fears? I'm not going to let you hide. You got to show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple. It sounds very commonsensical. But 
It's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.